praises, praises, praises to the most high, Ahaya, Asher, Ahaya. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington. And we would like to say shalom and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. This is a podcast where we will study the Bible, the biblical covenant, and what that means for us today. Before we get started, we need our listeners' participation. We are moving towards having a live show where you can interact with us, but we need your help. So if you could be so kind and to go to our website, psycove.com, S as in Sam, C as in Cat, I as in Iris, C as in Cat, O as in Oscar, and V as in Victor.com, and fill out our less than 20-second survey, it would be much appreciated. We want to know out of the days and times available, which day and time would be the most available to you to listen to us live. So, are your pen pad ready, your computer, your tablet to take your notes, and most importantly, do you have your Bibles ready? So, let's begin our Bible study as we continue to learning more about Yah's covenant and how it applies to us from the pastor, Richard Washington. It's over to you. All right, thank you very much. Uh, in our last study, we discussed the redemptive meeting, meeting place. <clears throat> in this uh, study, we'll be able to pinpoint where Elohim was in the redemptive uh, life of the individual. And we saw how Elohim approaches man from the spirit and man approaches him from the water and when they two meet and we were able to show how when they met it was at the water however what we are now endeavoring to be observant of is that the redemptive meeting place there are some ceremonial rituals which take place there and what we want to be cognizant of are some of these ceremonial rituals which are akin to the redemptive meeting place. There are a number of ceremonial rituals which are encompassed in what we call the pneumo aqua and the aqua pneumos. In other words, when we come to the water and Elohim meets with man, and man meets with Elohim, uh, there are quite a few rituals or ceremonial rituals that takes place there. In concerning, in our concerning ourselves with these rituals, what we'll be dealing with is being able to see much more of an impact when we deal with the spirit and the water. Now, we want to turn to Genesis. And in Genesis, we want to go to chapter one. And we want to look at verse number two, Genesis one, two. This will be a kind of a focal point that we'll be looking at. And here in chapter one, in verse two, it says, and the earth was without form and void, 
and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of Elohim moved upon the face of the waters. Okay, so we see here that the spirit was hovering over the waters. And as we pointed out, and this is the place where Elohim meets with man and man meets with him in order to get the redemption that is needed. Now, in concerning ourselves with these ceremonial rituals, some of the basic ones are marriage, baptism, circumcision, and death. And these are all some of the ceremonies and the rituals that the church and Elohim's people often observe. And as we explore these ceremonial rituals, we want to observe how they relate to the divine layout in which these ceremonial rituals are placed. We will refer to each of the ceremonial rituals with the thought of redemption in mind. Now, the first ceremonial ritual we will concern ourselves with is marriage, of which we will refer to as the redemptive wedding. However, prior to us going into these ceremonies and their rituals, let us first define what we mean by both a ceremony and a ritual. A ceremony is perceived as an occasion and or an event or an anniversary of some kind, which is celebrated by a continual on a continuous basis. So when we think about a ceremony, it's uh, it's some kind of a occasion or event or anniversary that one has. However, we view a ritual as an activity or practice or conduct which represents some event of some kind. So we see that the ritual represents the type of action or activity that goes on when one celebrates a ceremony. Consequently, we view a ceremonial ritual as an event having activities which portrays the event. Let us now consider our first ceremonial ritual which we mentioned, the redemptive wedding. And we want to turn to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we want to look at the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And we want to consider verses 7 and 8, Revelation 7, Revelation, the 19th chapter. And we want to look at verses 7 and 8. And here, verse 7 says of the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, it says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Here and here it speaks about the wife 
of the Lamb. So the question we ask is, when did she become his wife? Okay, when did she become his wife? Now, as we look at this, this passage in verse 7 of the 19th chapter of Revelation, it said, let us be glad and give honor to him. Now, who is to him? It's talking about Yeshua, the Messiah. It said, for the marriage of the lamb is come, the marriage of the lamb. Now, who is the lamb? The lamb was Yeshua who was crucified and died on the cross. That was the lamb. He was the lamb in whom John the Baptist says in the gospel of John, the first chapter in verse 29, John says, behold, the lamb of Elohim. So here the book of Revelation is talking about the lamb and we identify the lamb as being Yeshua. And he says, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, who is, who is the lamb's wife? Well, according to scriptures, the lamb's wife is his church. And he says that his church was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the linen, for the for the for the white linen, or the linen is the righteousness of the saints. So in other words, symbolically is saying the lamb is Yeshua, his wife is the church, and she is now being purified. And, and she has been purified and made clean. And now she is clothed in white linen and the white linen represents the righteousness of Yeshua. Or in this case, since the churches, church has accepted, which is his bride, they have accepted the righteousness of Yeshua. And the Bible says that this is the righteousness of the saints. So when we accept his righteousness, then it becomes our righteousness. And they call it the righteousness of the saints. Okay, so uh, we know these emblems. So let's find out uh, when when did his wife make herself ready that he could marry her? He cannot marry into sin. He can only marry a pure, innocent, flawless a person that was undefiled, and his church has to be undefiled. For him to marry her, okay. So we want to find out when did that when did that take place that he married his bride or his church? Okay, we want to turn to Ephesians, and in the book of Ephesians, we want to read a few verses there in the fifth chapter, Ephesians five. Here in Ephesians five, we want to start with verse number twenty-five, and here it reads. It's a husband's love your wives, even as the Messiah also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, here in verse 25, it says he's comparing his love for his bride, which is the church, to a husband and a wife. Okay. So he said, husband, love your wives, even as also, even as the Messiah also loved the church. So we see that when we look at the Messiah, he was the husband in his church, she was the wife. And so he's saying to the church and to those who are married, he says, there's a comparison 
uh, husbands, loving your wives, even as the Messiah also loved the church. And then it goes on in verse 25 in the latter part of it, it says, and gave himself for it, okay? Now, when he gave himself for it, when, when did he do this? Here it points out that Yeshua gave himself for the church. And another way of saying this is that he gave himself for his bride. When did he do this? He did it on Passover, the 14th of the first month, which is the month of the Aviv. So when he died on the cross, that was when the marriage took place. So what happened when he, as the lamb of Yehoah, was crucified for his bride, the church? Well, when he died for the church, he atoned for his people, which, which is the church. So what is an atonement? An atonement is when one is at one with the father. When his bride, which is Yeshua church, accepted his crucifixion of his life in our behalf, it did away with their sins. And by faith in his pure life, she too was pure. And she could now be pure, righteous. Uh, she could now be a pure and righteous bride of Yeshua. Consequently, it is at the cross that the marriage of Yeshua and his bride were united in holy matrimony. And when she was baptized, this was the wedding ceremony. So the concept is the crucifixion of Yeshua was the marriage and the baptism was the wedding. So what we are looking at is, is that when Yeshua died on the cross, he made an atonement for us. And so when he atoned for us, then he made us pure and we could be now become a part of his bride, which is the church. And then once the church had become a part of his life, then when the individual of the church was baptized, that was the wedding ceremony. Now, what we want to consider is the fact that uh, when we look at, let's go to the Gospel of John. And when we go to the Gospel of John, we want to use chapter two and use a few verses there. We want to start with verse one. Uh, that's the Gospel of, of uh, John. And here in this gospel, uh, we want to look at a few verses. And here it says in verse one of the gospel of John, it said, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Yeshua was there. And both Yeshua was called and his disciples to the marriage 
And when they wanted wine, the mother of Yeshua said unto him, they have no wine. So what we're looking, looking at here is that Yeshua was at a wedding himself. And it's interesting that when he started his ministry and he performed his first miracle, it was, a, it was at a wedding. Now we read in verse number 11, it says of the same chapter two in the gospel of John, he said, this beginning of the miracles did Yeshua in Cana of Galilee and manifest forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. He said, this the beginning of miracles. So the first miracle that he performed was at a wedding. Now, what we want to note, what we want you to notice at this wedding is that Yeshua had been fasting 40 days. And after the 40 days, uh, he came out of the wilderness. And when he did, he was invited to a wedding. And when he got to the wedding, the Bible says in verse three, it said, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Yeshua said unto him, they have no wine. And notice the reply of Yeshua. Yeshua said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. What we want you to see in, 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 in verse number four is that he told her when she said that they had run out of wine, he told her, he says, mine hour is not yet come. In other words, Yeshua's whole purpose for coming to the world was to be crucified and to die for our sins. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, his mind was very clear. He could perceive, he could understand things very clearly. And this is what oftentimes fasting can do for the human mind. It clears the mind in effort to be able to see more clearly and distinctively. And so when she asked, said unto them, they have no wine. He immediately thought about his death. And this is why he said, my hour has not yet come. She was thinking about the wine of merriment that they have at a wedding, but he was thinking about the wedding of the cross where he would die for sinners. And so when she asked for wine, his clear thinking mind thought about, thought all the way down to the cross. And he said, my hour has not yet come. Because when you ask for wine, wine was a symbol of blood. And when you had blood, then that represented the crucifixion. And that's what his mind was on. And then verse five says, his mother said unto the servants, whatsoever he said unto you, do it. And he told them in verse six, and there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. And Yeshua said unto them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast and they buried it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water 
that was made wine and knew not which it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worth, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. So in order for Yeshua to be married and have a wedding, two things must be present. Two things must be present in order to have a marriage and a wedding. The first thing that one must have is the blood. The blood marries us to Yeshua. It gives us the atonement. It makes us one with him. He is righteous. And if we accept his blood, we become righteous by faith. So we have to have the blood. And the next thing in order to have the wedding, we have to have the water because the water is that which cleanses us. And once we are clean, then that is the wedding ceremony. So the blood gives us the marriage and we celebrate the uh, marriage by the wedding, which is the water. So as we go through this study, we want you to keep in mind that in order for that to be a marriage, there has to be the blood and there has to be the water. And when we got the blood and the water, then we have what we call the ceremony, which is the marriage. And we have the ritual, which is the water or baptism. All right, now, we wanna, when we think, now, when we talk about the redemptive wedding, we look, we look again in Ephesians, in Ephesians, and we're looking at chapter five, Ephesians five. In Ephesians five, we want to look at uh, verse, Numbers, I believe it's 25 and 26. Okay. So here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 and 26, it says, Husband, love your wives, even as the Messiah also loved the church and gave himself for it. Okay. And so when he gave himself for it, that was the wine or that was the blood. That was the blood that he shed when he gave himself for the church, okay? And then in verse 26, it said that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. So it says here, you got the water, which is his word, but is also representative of baptism. So again, we see the two elements there. We see the marriage taking place with the blood and the water taking place with the wedding. So as we look at the redemptive wedding, we think in terms of the wedding generally, it is with the scope of a man uniting with a woman in holy matrimony. Yeshua himself said of marriage that in the beginning, he made them male and female. And so when we read in Matthew 19, chapter 19 and verse four, Yeshua in talking to 
some of the people of his day, he made them cognizant of the fact that in the beginning, he says, that he made them male and female. So in other words, marriage was something that he himself had created, he and his father. However, we must be able to perceive that the concept of marriage goes beyond just man and woman. It goes to male and female. While it is true that in the human race, it is the man who is the male and the woman who is the female, yet maleness and femaleness aren't just in the human species. It can be found in the animal uh, kingdom, it can be found in the agricultural kingdom, and it can also be uh, uh, seen in the astronomical spheres as well. So when we look at animals, there's something in the animal world, there are those who are uh, male and female in the agricultural world of plants, there's a female and the male. And when we look at the heavens, there's also what we call the male and the female. When Adam studied the living uh, creatures of Elohim, he was able to discern this. So let us turn to uh, let us turn to Genesis chapter chapter one. Genesis chapter one. And here in Genesis chapter one. Here we read, it says in verse 24, it said, and Elohim said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind and cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind and it was so. So what we see that on the sixth day, Elohim made a plethora of beasts that were, that were upon the earth. And as they roamed the earth, they were to populate the animal family. And here, and here we read in verse 25, it says, and Elohim made the beasts of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and Elohim saw that it was good. So here we see all of the creation of Elohim, all of the creatures that he had made on the sixth day. Now, when we look in Genesis chapter two, and we notice in verse number 19, what it says, it said, and out of the ground, Jehovah Elohim formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So we see in verse 19, of the second chapter of Genesis is that Elohim took Adam to school. And the schooling was that all of these creatures that I've made from the dust of the earth, I want you to name these creatures and whatever you name these creatures is gonna be their name. And notice what it said in verse number 20, it says, and Adam gave names to the cattle and to the fowl, of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not formed and helped me for him. 
Now notice, notice here that he named everything, all of the creatures that Elohim had made. He, he named them. Now apparently Adam may have felt that he was missing something, but he just couldn't put his finger on it. However, after taking a nap and awakening, Elohim presented to him a woman made from his own being. And notice what Adam says when he saw this woman from his own being in verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, Adam didn't know what he was missing because when he studied the animals, he saw the male and the female gorilla. He saw the male and the female giraffe. He saw the male and the female tiger. He saw the male and the female squirrel. But he, he didn't know that he was supposed to have a female. He didn't know that. But Elohim was giving, giving him some marriage counsel uh, that before he got married, that he would be astute to know that the female came from the male and how they just treat one another. So even though Adam perhaps figured when he saw all of the males and females and these different animals, he feels he was missing something, but he had no idea what he was missing. But when he had woken and he saw the beautiful woman that was there, then perhaps something in his being says, mm, I saw all of this in the animal world, but I didn't see it in man. So Elohim held it back for him. <clears throat> and then when he was able to see it, he was so delighted that he had a little poetry going that this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, when Yeshua said that in the beginning, Elohim made them male and female, he was taking us all the way back to the first marriage of the human family, Adam and Eve. However, at this just a position, what we want to examine is the composition of which the first marriage couple were made up of, and we will refer to this part of our studies as the redemptive wedding elements. We want to look at the redemptive wedding elements. Now, the redemptive wedding elements, what we want to accomplish in this study is to look at the science of the chemistry of marriage. When we concern ourselves with the chemistry of marriage, we must keep in mind that long before there was a man or a woman, the elements which make, made them up were already in existence. And what we want to be able to see is the very element or the very elements to make up the being of Adam and Eve in which their marriage would eventually culminate in. In other words, the being of Adam and Eve had uh, in their marriage was a concept already in the chemical elements which they were composed of. Let us examine this concept of marriage in the elements. We will refer to this, at, this section as the study of the ele elemental marriage, the elemental marriage, the elemental marriage. 
Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, and Yehovah Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So when we look at an elemental marriage, we're looking at the elements in marriage. When we consider that Adam was made from the earth, then it would be understood that his body was made up of whatever the earth contained. Moreover, when he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, when the breath of life was breathed into the physical substance of Adam, this meant that his spirit was composed of everything that was in Yah's spirit was in his. Subsequently, the two elements of which Adam were made out of were the soil and air. So here we find it prior to the first man's existence, there was the spirit and earth. This is what we would call the pneumo agri agricultural marriage. Let us look at this term briefly. When we talk about the pneumos agricultural marriage, this term, pneumos, agricultural, concerns itself with the spirit of Yah and the earth. When the spirit came together with the earth, of which Adam was made of, there was a matrimony taking place between the spirit of man and his physical being. It was, in some instances, the coming together of heaven and earth. Yahuwah and man, <coughs> by the physical elements and the spiritual elements, merging together to create a living soul. What we have is the life of Elohim with the life of man. Well, the life of Elohim went into man. However, we want to probe a little deeper than the pneumos agricultural to see where the spirit and the earth were prior to them coming together to form man. So when we go back to Genesis chapter one and verse two, we are told in this verse, it says, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of Elohim moved upon the face of the waters. Now, where, where it says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of Elohim moved upon the face of the waters. Here in this scenario, we have what we refer to as the Numos Aqua. The Lumos Aqua marriage, which comes from the spirit of Yah uniting with the waters which covered the earth. So the Numo Aqua marriage, what we are experiencing in the Numo Aqua marriage is that prior to the spirit uniting with the earth, 
it first uniting with the water. Here in this act of Elohim spirit moving upon the waters, we experience the first concept of marriage. Marriage in the elements of our world, when Elohim spirit moved upon the face of the waters, he was marrying the water to himself. This is what we call the pneumo aqua marriage. When the spirit and the water comes together, the concept of marriage is there. Let us now observe the wedding of the two. The pneumo aqua wedding, a wedding is the ceremonial ritual for a marriage. When Yah's spirit moved upon the face of the waters, we are experiencing a matrimony of the elements of the wind and the water. What is said about the marriage of Adam and Eve could also be said about the spirit and the water. When Yeshua said, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh, Yeshua further says of this same text, wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore Elohim has joined together, let no man put asunder. So when we look at Genesis 2, 24 and Matthew 19, 6, they were texts to show us that the concept of marriage is that when Elohim put it together, he said, let no man put it asunder. So there are two things we want to focus upon in these passages of scriptures. The first thing is that in a marriage of a male and female, the two becomes one. Sec and secondly, Yeshua says, what Yah has joined together, let no man put asunder. Concerning the marriage, these two factors are, the highlighted, uh, are highlighted. When the male and the female comes, becomes one, why do they become one? They become one because they started off as one and then they were separated. Once having been separated and then they come back together as one. Once having come back to what it was separated from, Yah says, let no man put them asunder. So what we are experiencing is, is that when Elohim put Adam and Eve together, Eve came out of the side of Adam and it made them two. But when they came back together, he said they are one. While this basically is referring to a man and a woman, yet the principle within these words goes further than just a male and female man and woman whatsoever it is that Yah joins together man is not to separate therefore when Yah's spirit united with that of the water that was a bond that should not ever be put asunder the spirit and the water was put together by Yah and whosoever he and whatsoever he does 
is an eternal is an eternal act, which would mean that the spirit and the water are tied together for eternity. The act of bonding the spirit with the water is one of the first things Yah did, and this act would be the basic foundation for both the material matter of creation as well as the spiritual substance of salvation. These two elements, spirit and water, are married, and man should not seek to separate them. Once the spirit and the water gets married, they become one. As a matter of fact, when we compare the spirit of oxygen with the water of hydrogen and oxygen, we can see that a part of water is oxygen. Thus, hydrogen and oxygen, in a way, are united in matrimony. In this matrimony of the spirit and the water, we have what is called the pneumos aqua intimacy, of which we refer to as the pneumo aqua intercourse. And let us examine this concept the pneumo aqua intercourse, when the element of the spirit and the element of water come together in a close intimacy, this consummates the marriage. Once the marriage is consummated, then generally children follow. However, before we consider human children at this stage, let us see how the union of spirit and water brings forth children. When we read in Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 1, 2, that the earth was without form and void, what we, experience, what we are experiencing is that the earth is in existence, but it, but it has neither form nor substance. And when Moses goes on to say that darkness was upon the face of the deep, this would strongly suggest that the earth was submerged underneath the water. With that being the case, it is logical that Moses, under inspiration, would write that the spirit of Elohim moved upon the waters. So naturally, if the spirit moved upon the waters, which engulfed the earth, then no doubt. The spirit, the water, and the earth were all included in the marriage. Just like Adam and Eve separated from Adam and they twain became one, even so, on the second day of creation, the water was separated from the earth and the water was called seas and the dry land was called earth. Just as Eve and Adam were separated into two individuals, yet they were considered to be one. Thus, when we see that once the water and the earth were, were mixed together as one, now that they are separated into individual components, standing side by side, they are married and they are one. Therefore, in this marriage, there are three elements. We have the spirit, we have the water, and we have the earth, of which we were referred to as the pneumos 
aqua agricultural. Let us now look at this concept, the newborn aqua agricultural marriage. We've discussed that the spirit is marriage, married to the water. Now, in addition to the numos aqua marriage, we now have what we would refer to as the aqua agricultural marriage. So for purposes of viewing the water and the earth, which is the aqua agricultural, in the beginning, water and earth resided together. And then they were separated. And once they be became, had become individual entities like Adam and Eve, thus we have the water and the earth married. Yah has put them together, water and earth, uh, wedlock, just as in marriage in the human family, even so in the water and the earth. So the concept of marriage is built into the universe. And so when we see how Elohim has orchestrated these things, then he uses them as ceremonies and rituals in his word in order to help us to see how we can have a redemptive wedding. Now, let us look at this. When we consider the fact that a wedding has to have the blood or the wine, then when we look at Adam, when we look at Adam, Adam, and when you take the A off of Adam, you have Dom, which is blood. So when the blood of Adam had received the oxygen, as a result, the blood became oxygenated and Adam received life. And we know in order to have life, you have to have air and you have to have water. So when Adam was created, just like the earth came out of water, we find that after it was sanctified through the Holy Spirit, then Adam, when the spirit came into him, he was a sanctified being. So the blood that was oxygenated by the spirit of Elohim was the marriage. And as a result of Adam being made out of the earth and no doubt the water, this was the wedding ceremony. And so when we look at that imagery, what we see here is that when there was blood, there was also some water. Because in order to have blood, you must also have water. All right. Now, when we look at the restoration, when the world's end and the world was destroyed, all of the destruction and the sacrifice of human life, that was the blood. And then when it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, that was the water. And so what Elohim was doing, he was remarrying the earth. And as he remarried the earth and all of the wickedness was gone, then he had the wedding 
by allowing the wind to dry up the waters in order to start a new creation. And then when we go down into Egypt, he tells the Egyptian to get a goat or a lamb and to kill it and to put the blood on the doorpost. And when they put that blood on the doorpost, we must understand that was the marriage because that blood on that doorpost would represent Yeshua, the lamb of Elohim, who would die for his people. So when they put that blood on their door, doorpost, they were saying that this house or this family is now married to Yeshua, the Messiah. And then when they started their journey and they went through the Red Sea, that was the water. And when they was going through the Red Sea, uh, even the Apostle Paul says, when they went through that Reed Sea, that the east wind that blew, that they were being baptized. And so when they had the blood on the lintels of their houses and on the doorposts of their houses, that was the marriage. But when they went through the water of the Red Sea, this was the wedding. They were celebrating the Passover. So the water goes with the <clears throat> the water goes with the blood, or the blood goes with the water. So when we see that they came out of Egypt with the blood, they went through the water, we see both the marriage of the blood and the wedding of the water. And then when we even look at the sanctuary service, what do we notice? When you come into the sanctuary, you have your sacrifice, which you get your blood. And once you get your blood, then you go to the labor to wash off the blood. And what is in the labor? Well, what is in the labor is, is water. And it's also blood that comes from the sacrifice. So the blood and the water is mingled together, just like when in the first wedding of which Jesus went to, he turned the water into wine. And so when the blood was put in the labor, it looked like there was wine in the labor because it was reddish. The, the water became became reddish, but what Elohim was doing, that the sacrifice was when they accepted him and the sacrifice was slain, then that was the marriage. And then when they washed off the blood with the washing of the water, which is the washing of the word, then that became the wedding ceremony. So the altar was the marriage and the labor was the wedding. And then when we turn into, uh, let us turn to the third chapter of the book of John. In John chapter three, when Yeshua was having a dialogue with uh, Nicodemus that night, uh, he also mentioned to him these three elements. And notice what it, what it says in, uh, in, in the gospel of John chapter three. And we're looking at verse 14. The Bible says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Okay. So what do we see? We see here the crucifixion he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to be lifted up. Just as that serpent was lifted up into the wilderness and when I be lifted up, he was saying he was going to be dying for humanity. He will be shed in his blood. So whosoever believeth in that, he said, should not perish, but have life everlasting because of the fact they have become wedded to him 
And whenever you become wedded to Yeshua and do what he says, then this marriage is going to be for eternity, not just for a temporary time. So here, when he said, I'll be lifted up to Nicodemus, he was showing him where Nicodemus could get married to Yeshua, the Messiah, in the sense of him being a part of the church of the bride of Yeshua and Yeshua, the Messiah. And then notice what he says. He takes us back to in verse eight of the third chapter of the book of John. He said in, in the third chapter and in verse five, let us go to verse five. He's in Yeshua answered very verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water. Okay, so here now he said, be born of the water, uh, which is the wedding ceremony. In other words, when I accepted the Yeshua who is lifted up, that's the marriage. But now I, I have the ritual of being able to have the wedding, which is the washing of the water, which is the waters of repentance. And then when I get to waters of repentance, then the Holy Spirit comes down because the Bible says, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of Elohim. So again, we see the same scenario. Elohim being lifted up on the cross is the marriage. And then the washing away in the waters of baptism is the wedding. So what we are looking at, if we are to be saved, we too must accept the crucifixion and the blood life of Yeshua on the torture stick and go and wash away our sins, which is the wedding. So Elohim is teaching us that when we have the meeting place at the water, there are a number of ceremonial rituals that are going on. And we have discussed one today, which is marriage. And then if it's his will next week, we'll see if we can look at some more of the ceremonial rituals that water and the blood has to do with Elohim's people. So we'll stop at this uh, ritual ceremony of marriage. So when he turned from water to wine, did that have the same significance as the water for baptism as well as the, well, let me leave it at that. Did it have the same significance as the water for baptism? Yeah, in a, in, in a way, in a, in a way it does. Uh, when, we go, when we go to the cross of Yeshua, when we go to the cross, what we find here is that when that soldier put that spear in his side, the Bible tells us that water and blood came out. Mm -hmm. okay. So when we understand baptism properly, what, what is being washed away? Is the washing away is the sinful blood of our life because we have accepted the new blood of Yeshua's life. So, and actually, when you look at the water at the wedding, which Yeshua himself said his time had not come, but he was trying to show that even though the governor liked that particular 
sweetness, but yet he says that they had saved the best until the last. And so what we see here also is the fact that in baptism, that is also the last because the first birth that we have with the blood and the water is our physical birth. But the second birth, which is uh, the spiritual birth of going down, accepting the blood and going down to the water and washing the way that we can see somewhat of the same significance and that if we get eternal life through the marriage to him, it's going to be much sweeter than the first time we were born into this world because once we get into the eternal world, it's going to even be greater than this. But there is a lot of similarities between the water turning to blood at the wedding as well as when we are getting baptized. Uh, if we look into the imagery, we can see some of the same factors taking place. So do the same factors when you take in consideration of the wine that he turned water to wine and then at the Last Supper when he was saying the wine was his blood, are those two kind of linked? I uh, hadn't thought about that, but uh, now that you brought it out, certainly I, w- I, would, see the link. I would see the link between that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, this is why what he told his disciples that this great, this fruit of the vine will represent my blood, that he said, I would not drink it to you, with you, until it's new in the kingdom of Elohim. Mm-hmm. So what we see again here is that if he were not going to drink it until it was new in the kingdom of Elohim, then it suggests very strongly that one of the first suffers that we're going to have to celebrate the wedding of us being redeemed is the Passover service in heaven because mm-hmm. it was the Passover service that he was telling them about that. He said, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine with you mm-hmm. until it's new in the kingdom. So once we get into the kingdom, we can look to get some of the grapes that comes off the heavenly vine and to continue to celebrate the Passover in the kingdom to come. Okay. And before we close out this segment, uh, one last question. So, when Yah marries the called out assemblies, does that mean we become one with him just like as in marriage when uh, two people get married and they become one if at, after the intercourse? Will we then become one with Yahuwah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, uh, when he meets us at the water, the water uh, celebrates the wedding, celebrates the marriage that took place at the cross. And that makes us one with him. And that's what the word atonement means, at one with, with Elohim. So when we accept his blood and continue to walk the way he wants us to, then we are accepted in his family. And then we celebrated the wedding through baptism. All right. Up next is Let's Talk About That. Welcome this week to another Let's Talk About That. This week on Let's Talk About That, I want to talk about churches and the idols in them. Now, when we read in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5, which, as we all know, is the Ten Commandments, it says, You shall not make unto any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the waters under the earth. You should not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them. For I, Yahuwah Eloheka, am a jealous El, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. But in many churches, whether they be Adventist, Catholic, Catholic, Baptist, a lot of times when you visit these churches, you even see statues of the pictures of G- that depict supposed Yeshua or Jesus. You see stained glass windows with Yeshua on the cross or the Last Supper. And many of us even have these pictures in our home. And a lot of them are even on religious publications. So I'm just wondering that that are these graven images and idols that is in these churches. I would, I would think that uh, when we look at the synagogues and the churches, look, see what what we call a church mm-hmm. is, a, is a building where we where we worship. Mm-hmm. Generally, in days of old, uh, the church was considered the gathering of the people, mm-hmm. but as time went on, then churches became. Uh, not only the congregation, but also the place where you where you meet, because the average person, when you say, did you go to church uh, yesterday or did you go to church last week? Mm-hmm. Uh, they are thinking about going to a place, but the church was actually the, the people. OK, OK. But be that said, that as time went on and they began to merge church and the people together, mm-hmm. then they began to build structures that they were to meet in. And one one of the things that they did, especially during uh, the, the time of the Reformation was that they, uh, during the Reformation, I think they had uh, uh, an organization they called it Low Lords. Mm-hmm. And during the Reformation, they painted pictures, and when they painted pictures, these particular pictures depicted what was going on with Luther and the church, and they were able to give messages to the people by drawing things rather than reading something, but they could look at it, and they can get the message. Okay. So sometimes imagery can help a person to understand stuff, mm-hmm. but when you take houses where they meet to worship, if they are to represent Elohim, then what we see here is that if we go back to the meeting place of Elohim, Mm -hmm. that they had what they call a sanctuary or a tabernacle. And when we look in there, it had furniture and it had uh, on the veil, you know, uh, figurines of angels and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they had objects in there that represented uh, Elohim, his son, the priests, and the father, and the angels. But they did not have pictures because when you read the commandment, it says, have no images. And a lot of these images that are in the churches uh, have over the years. Uh, 
been in the churches because they didn't see them as images according to what you just read in the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. They were uplifting what they call the saints. But the only thing about that is Elohim is not trying to help us to reach the status of saints. He's trying to help us to reach the status of Yeshua. And oftentimes when we put those saints and stuff in there, then we are comparing man with man. Elohim don't want us to be comparing ourselves with ourselves. The only person we can compare ourselves with in salvation is Yeshua. So when we put a lot of those pictures and, and, and statues in the church, then they become a museum for man and not for Elohim because Elohim did not ex uh, uh, ordain those things to be on his premise. Mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of times we say uh, that the Catholic they have a lot of statues and Lutheran churches have statues. And then when we look at our churches, we also have certain uh, uh, emblems uh, that we, we may have. Uh, we may not have statues and, and, and pictures of, of, uh, of some of the pioneers of the, of, of the faith. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at our publications and stuff, they, they have different, images of Yeshua. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at those different images of Yeshua, it's really not de even depicting him uh, from the place that he came from, but is other ethnicities that they are using in order to depict him, which is not historically correct as well. But those can be just as much images in our literature as there are images in uh of the statues and the things in other churches. True. So to me, no image should be made of Yahuwah. And uh, because basically we, none of us have ever seen him and know what he even looks like. And, mm. uh, and you know, nine times out of 10, it's not going to be an accurate depiction of him. And so I'm like, you know, uh, to me, if he said, if nothing should be made that represents him, I don't think any of these things should be in the church, you know, uh, well, in the building or in the facility. Uh -huh. uh, because to me, you're basically, you know, to me, in a way, you're actually worshiping this uh, picture to say that he looks like this. And that's what they constantly feed you and whatnot. Well, that's true. And a lot of times the reason why uh, we have white supremacy in the church is because uh, Christianity as a whole here in America have insisted on the white Jesus. Mm -hmm. And when they put the white Jesus up there on the cross and you go into uh, the church, then what are you saying? You're saying that the dominant people are the white people mm -hmm. and that the white man is the one that is the, is the one that saved you. And many people, I've even been in churches where if you take that white Jesus down, many people, some the time they get upset and come out, why did you take that white Jesus down? But the average person, especially people of color, they have no problem. Many of them don't have no problem with the white, that white Jesus. But at the same time, if you tell white folk to come into a church with a black Jesus, 
they probably look at you like you're crazy. But yet and still, when you tell them about a white Jesus, the first thing they say, well, it doesn't matter. But then when you start talking about a black Jesus, then all of a sudden it matters. So all of these images that people are putting there, uh, they are not really looking at the commandment for the significance of it because it is not saying we cannot have pictures and statues in our homes or anything. But when we come to the house where we meet, what it is saying is that the statues or the pictures themselves are not necessarily wrong. But it's saying is when you make them a form of worship and one of the first thing you do when you go into a place of worship is to worship. So why would you have that in a place of worship? Because it's in a place that you worship. Apparently, that's what you that's what you are worshiping. But is it too possible that Satan has infiltrated uh, in a lot of these religions and had his people place these items in there to get them off the uh, path of the true Yahuwah? Yeah, well, let us go just let us go back to some basic stuff uh, when we look at the development of the church. When we look at the architecture of our churches, isn't it isn't it strange uh, that when Elohim gave the architecture of the uh, of the sanctuary and the meeting place, mm-hmm. it is altogether different from the places that we worship today? Yeah. Now there are two things I want to want to point out here. Two things I want to point out. Number one, I want to point out the calendar. Okay, mm-hmm. when you go go to worship in 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 the house of Elohim. Uh, you should follow his calendar. Now, his calendar is that when we worship, according to the scriptures, is that he has a Sabbath, okay. which is every every seventh day, every 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 week. Mm-hmm. Then he has the festivals, which are the annual feasts, uh, every year. So it seems like if I'm going to worship, I'm going to go. So when you take your calendar and you do not go into your house of worship or the place that you worship according to his calendar what are you doing mm-hmm. you're going by somebody else's calendar and so that calendar becomes idolatry mm-hmm. and so when you look at the idolatry of the of the calendar and you say well i'm going to church on easter on christmas halloween and all these other pagan days then that calendar has become idolatry in the house of Elohim. Now, when uh, the second thing we want to notice is not only the calendar, but also the architectural uh, design of the house of Elohim. Mm-hmm. So when when you go into the sanctuary, what do you have? You have the court. And in the court, what do you have? You have the altar. Mm-hmm. And that's where you accept the blood of Yeshua. And then you have the labor to wash off, wash away your sins. And then after you wash away your sins, what do you do? You come into the house or the sanctuary. And when you get into the sanctuary, what do you see? When you first get into the first apartment of the sanctuary, you look to your right and you see the table of showbread. You look to your left, you see the, the menorah with the seven lamps that are lit and give light to the sanctuary. And you look straight before you. And you see the altar of incense that when they light the incense and pray and the smoke goes up over the veil and over the veil, 
you have the most holy place. And in the most holy place, what do you have? You have the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. You have the two angels on both sides of the covenant, according to the Mosaic sanctuary. And between those cherubims, you have the Shekinah glory that represents Elohim. Now, that's the way he laid out his sanctuary. Okay, now let's let's look at the architectural development of the Romans churches. When you go into the church, what, what do you have? First, when you go in there, and they they got some of them have a lot of reverence and they have the incense and all that. Oh. But the thing that I want to point out is is that when you get into there uh, and you walk into the church, then behind the podium where uh, generally the prayers are made on the podium by the priest, uh -huh. and then behind the podium, uh, well, when you come in, you can call that where they had the seat in there and everything. You can call that the the holy place. Mm -hmm. And then up there where the priest is officiating, and behind the priest you have the baptistry, mm -hmm. and that could call you could call that the, the most the most holy place. But do you see the problem with that? Is is that they got the baptist baptistry in back of the priest in the most holy place. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the Protestant churches, they follow suit. When you go into a Protestant church, what do you see? You see, you come into the pews, which is the holy place. And then you got the pulpit where the preacher preaches. And behind the preacher, what do you have? The baptistry. What is that teaching you? Mm -hmm. It is teaching you this. Elohim says that when you come into the court and you accept the sacrifice, you wash yourself and be clean before you come into my house. But they're saying you come into the house first. You don't have to clean yourself. Mm -hmm. And then behind the pastor is the baptistry. And when you get into the baptistry, you can clean yourself. You should have been clean before you got into the house. So even mm -hmm. the architectural layout is idolatry. Wow. And so when we understand that when we say Catholicism changed the festival days, they also changed the architecture. And that is idolatry. And we must see it for what it is. Wow. That is really deep. You know, I don't think a lot of us, we really think about all those the details. Mm -hmm. You know. Wow. Well, Pastor, can you offer a word of prayer to close us out on this podcast? Okay. Our Lord Father, we thank you again that we have a time to be able to... Let's talk about it. And as we talk about it, oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you will make indelible impressions on our mind concerning the great plan of salvation. We won't always be on this earth. One day we're going to be in the heavenly realms. But we want to make the best of it while we are here. That as we prepare ourselves for eternity, oh, Heavenly Father, because this is the end time in which we are living. Men and women and boys and girls, oh, Heavenly Father, everywhere are searching for answers. And we know the answer is found in you. So as we come week after week, oh, Heavenly Father, putting out your word, we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Yeshua may help us to rightly divide your word that we can properly understand it and apply ourselves to it. That we may be your covenant keeping people. That one day we can have a life that will measure with the life of Elohim throughout eternity. But until that time, help us to be faithful to the wedding vows, Lord, that we have taken as we are married to Yeshua. And, it, and we have gone through the wedding, O Heavenly Father, being washed. 
Help the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to lead us that the life of Yeshua that we have accepted may continue to interwoven itself within our life. That when Yeshua does come, if we are in the grave, O oh, Heavenly Father, we can be resurrected in that first resurrection to be with Thee. And if we are still living when you do come, may we be found doing the things that you would have us to do. And then when we graduate from the earthly school to the heavenly school, then we can understand many of the mysteries of the universe and even this very planet itself and many of the things that we could not understand. But the most thing that we want to study when we get into heaven is not just simply your heavenly father, the science of the world and the atmosphere and the universe, but we want to study about the love of Elohim that he gave to us on the cross. And when he died for us, oh heavenly father, that was the greatest love that he could display to the human family. And we thank you for that great love. And as we look again to Pentecost, to Passover, that was when he gave his life for the bride, his church, to be able to be married to her and to be able to wash away that sin in the wedding so that we can be able to celebrate in the great day when it's all over to give you the praise, the honor and the glory, majesty, dominion, power, and all of the thanks for your wonderful blessings. Pray this prayer in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. 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 That is our podcast for this week. Before we go, if you could please go to our website and fill out the two-question survey, it is much appreciated. you have questions or comments, email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. But as the mercy of Yahuwah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto his children, children, to such as to guard his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Until next week, Shalom.